Hi, everyone, and welcome to HR Works, brought to you by BLR. I'm your host, Steve Bruce. HR Works provides clear, relevant, actionable information on topics that matter to HR professionals. When you're armed with best practices, plus the knowledge to keep your organization in compliance, HR works. We're particularly interested in how the definition of diversity has evolved and expanded and what the term really means in 2017. Traditionally, diversity dealt with race and ethnicity and then gender, but now the term seems to encompass just about everything from generational differences to political ideologies to gender identity. So we wanted an expert's perspective on what diversity looks like in 2017 and its role in organizational success. To help us, we've asked Susan Scott, founder and CEO of executive development and training firm Fierce to join us. Known for her bold yet practical approach to executive coaching and leadership development, Susan has been challenging people to say things that can't be said for over two decades. She founded Fierce in 2001 after 13 years leading CEO think tanks, more than 10,000 hours of conversations with senior executives and one epiphany. While no single conversation is guaranteed to change the trajectory of a career, a business, a marriage, or a life, any single conversation can. Susan continues to share her expertise with clients through her thought leadership, keynote presentations, and award-winning books. Susan, welcome to HR Works. I'm delighted to be here, Steve. Thank you. If you would, let's start by defining diversity in 2017 terms. What all does the term encompass today? Well, you were, you were correct earlier when you said it pretty much encompasses all of the ways in which we human beings differ. And there are so many variations on the theme. Um, so it, it just means that, you know, the doors are open to any and all, um, and we need to be welcoming, and we need to be respectful, and we need to be curious, uh, and we will benefit from that attitude and the behavior that goes along with it. All right, great. And uh, we also hear the term inclusion a lot. Is that the same as diversity, or is there some difference? There's some difference there. I mean, you can have um, a very diverse workforce, let's say, but you still end up having the usual suspects at the table when you're making important decisions. Um, and, and that can be a, a huge, huge miss. So inclusion, you know, it's like I get that, I get that it's, it's okay for me to be here at your company even though I look different than everybody else or think differently than everybody else, but how can you use me in deeper, more meaningful ways? So um, what, what, one of the things that we're really teaching companies is how very important it is to have multiple competing perspectives present when important decisions are being made or um, problems are being solved. Oh, good. So thanks for clarifying that. Now, diversity has been... Let me say one other thing about that, if I may. Sorry to interrupt you, but one, one of the things that I think goes along with this is 
our belief that what gets talked about in a company and how it gets talked about and who is invited to the conversation is what determines what's going to happen and equally what is not going to happen. So it's, it's who's, who's invited to be a part of the conversation. Okay, thanks for that. So diversity has been around for a while. Why the sudden interest now? Why is it so critical to have a diverse workforce in 2017? Well, our workplace survey on diversity inclusion found that over 40% of the respondents believe that their organizations would benefit from greater diversity, as do we. And this number increases to 55% amongst those who are 18 to 29, which is very telling. I think that number rises dramatically for millennial employees. And by the way, 80% of our employees here at Fierce are millennials. They have a very different view of diversity than earlier generations had. They have grown up with diversity. They have grown up with inclusion. They don't understand what the issue is, they, they, which is one of the things that I love about them. When I even think about my own daughters and even my, my, my young, very young grandchildren, they're in classes with, um, that are very diverse, and everyone's opinion is valued and honored, and there's just no discrimination. If there's bullying, it usually isn't so much around um, um, d- diversity as we think about it. It's just about the mean girls picking on some bad, you know, easy prey or the bad boys picking on somebody that they think is not strong enough to fight back. So the millennials have, they, they don't understand what the, what the issue is. Um, around inclusion and diversity, which I find to be so refreshing. Yeah, that's good news for sure. Now, your research yeah. also found that employees were more likely to have been discriminated against over gender and political beliefs. And that means employees face discrimination over political beliefs more frequently than discrimination over race, religion, or sexual orientation. So what does that tell you about discrimination and what are the implications for the kind of training that organizations need? Well, there's a, there's a slight correction I want to make there. It's not that we found that people are more likely to have been discriminated against over gender and political beliefs, but we did find that 21% of the 1,000 people surveyed said they had been discriminated against because of gender and 20% because of political beliefs. So it is very real. It's really, really there. And I think it's such a struggle because we have to understand, especially right now with the huge chasm between political parties, just because someone voted for what I think is the wrong person does not mean that I have to put that person in a box that says they have nothing to offer, I don't like them. Um, if they, if they feel this way about politics, then any of their other opinions on any other topic must also be equally flawed. So one of the big things at Fierce is we want everybody to understand that there are always going to be multiple competing realities existing simultaneously around almost any topic under the sun. One of the images that we use is... Um, a beach ball, you know, you think about an organization as if it's a gigantic beach ball and beach balls have different colored stripes on them. 
and every single person who works in the company is standing on a particular colored stripe and is experiencing the company from that perspective. So if I, as a CEO, am standing on a blue stripe, let's say, I tend to think blue thoughts, I tend to read blue reports, I tend to have blue opinions, I tend to make blue um, suggestions. And while I'm spouting off about how blue the company is, the guy that's living on the the green stripe or the red stripe or the yellow stripe is wondering, but what about these other issues that are also true about the company? So, you know, if you ask what color is the company, who owns the truth about the company? Well, no one person owns it. There, there are so many different truths, and each person owns a piece of it. And I, I always like to quote Andre Gide, who was a French philosopher, and one of the many brilliant things he said was nothing is more dangerous than an idea when it's the only one you have. So the expansion uh. of yeah, so the expansion of diversity must include diversity of thought. Because you can have a whole bunch of people who who look the same and have very different thinking or people who are looking very different but have the same thinking. We need to get to diversity of thought so that we can Get it right for an organization. I think a, a leader's job is not to be right. A leader's job is to get it right. And that requires really understanding what what is happening around a particular issue from multiple, often competing perspectives. Thanks. That uh, beach ball image, that's uh, very helpful. So then what can employees do if they feel they're ex- experiencing some kind of discrimination or witnessing discrimination? What, what should they do with such a situation? Well, I would hope that what they would do is just go have the conversation with the person they feel is, is behaving in the wrong way and, and really have that directly face-to-face, if at all possible, um, and just let this person know you know, here, here's what's happened, here's how it affected me, can you tell me what, what's going on with you? And sadly, a lot of people are afraid to do that. Um, so they should definitely read Chapter 4 in Fierce Conversations because it's <laughs> like, how do you have that conversation? But um, if they really feel that someone is unsafe and that they, they won't be able to have or they tried to have a reasonable conversation and did not get anywhere, then yeah, they should go to to HR. The thing is that dialogue is so important and um, just saying to someone, look, this is, I want to talk with you about the effect that this particular behavior or that this comment had on me or on somebody else. You know, here's an example of exactly what I mean and here's what I feel um, was the effect and here's what I feel is at stake to gain or lose regarding this kind of comment or this kind of behavior, and I really want to resolve this. Um, so, you know, please talk with me. It's it's just a conversation. It's not a fight. It's not a um, hurling an accusation. It's not meant to be said with um, flashing eyes and and or, and tears and and red cheeks. It's meant to be had calmly and respectfully. This is what happens. This is what this is what I feel is at stake, you know, what's going on from where you sit. And it's, it's a very skillful invitation to someone to talk about it. And 
you know, you would you would think that we are all capable of doing this, and I think we are. But until people learn how to do it, they they're 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 afraid. So there's a lot of fear about these kinds of conversations simply because people have never been taught how to have them. And so that's one of the kinds of conversations that we teach people how to have. All right, so a little more broadly, if, if we're talking about a workplace diversity program, if a company wants to pay more attention to it, it's going to be more than just training managers to be open to the opinions uh, of others, as you were mentioning, but it's also going to go uh, a little beyond that, isn't it? Yeah, it is. You're right. Um, just So let's say I am an involved, enlightened person who is open to other people's ideas that are different than mine. And yet, even, even the most savvy individual can, without meaning to sometimes, shut down the conversation. You know, let's say I've said, let's say I'm running a meeting and I've said, I, I'm gonna tell you what I think we should do and I, I want you to go ahead, you know, challenge my thinking because I know not everybody feels the same way I do. So here's what I think, blah, 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 blah. So what do you guys think? And then somebody finally says, well, I'm a little concerned about X and they put X on the table and then we say, thanks for sharing that, but, and we go right on into rebuilding our own case again and we don't realize what we've just done is we've 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 said uh you're wrong or um apparently you haven't yet grasped the brilliance of my thinking uh, <laughs> or um you know i wasn't really asking i'm not really interested in what you have to say but it is important for us to understand our biases and i know that we don't always even understand our biases um I just learned about a bias that I hadn't even realized um, that, and this, is, this, this one comes from David Rock, who's a pioneer in brain science as, as it applies to leadership, and he's saying there's this distance bias that we tend to want to hire people who are physically close to us rather than far away. I wouldn't even have thought of that when I was thinking about my own biases and what they might be and how I can... Um, and deal with them, what do I need to do to shift, you know, to become a, a more inclusive human being. I wouldn't even have thought that I have a distance bias, but I recognize it. Now that I know that it's out there, I recognize it. Yep, I really love to work with people who are closer, um, even if they're not going to come into the office, but they're in the same city or whatever. And that's just a, a weird bias that I didn't even know was out there that apparently is out there. So we do need to become aware of our biases. And then, you know, in our, we have, on our leadership team, we have all four generations. And in our generations training, we, we take people through an exercise that ultimately, it's a game that they play, that ultimately helps them understand that we are actually more alike than we are different, that this, this, a lot of the same things are really, really important to us. And that's very helpful. I remember going to a conference a year ago where we had a keynote speaker who started railing against millennials and and a lot of us were cringing and then somebody stood up and said by the way i'm a millennial and i resent what you're saying and everybody applauded and you would not hear somebody i don't think you would hear somebody making a statement like that today um if they did then they really have missed the boat 
So, um, you know, it's, it's just, there's just so much about diversity and inclusion. It's all of us, all the time, and when, we're, when we've got important decisions to make or problems to solve or strategies to design, we need to be much more thoughtful about whose perspective would be valuable given that X is the topic. Well, thank you and for then how do we, how do we, when somebody does challenge our thinking, how can we respond in a way that keeps that conversation going? All right, those are very helpful ideas. Have, have you seen any specific activities or approaches for employers to take uh, that have been particularly successful? Well, more and more employees are opening up to the value of the diversity of thought, and that that changes everything because you're going to find brilliant people from every part of our diverse human population. Um, they are, it, there was just, I had to laugh, somebody sent me an article that was published in the Harvard Business Review by these two professors in England who did extensive studies and arrived at the conclusion that, and this was the headline, the, the title of their article, um, diversity of thought is helpful in solving problems. And my reaction was, well, duh. Uh-huh. <laughs> where, have you, where have you been? Of course it is. Of course it is helpful in solving problems. Did it really take an article in the Harvard Business Review to get that point across, or have you been simply asleep at your desk? all of your lives. So I think people people more and more are saying, you know what, it would not be a good thing if we had another 2008 global financial crisis. And, in, and yet we still make a lot of the same mistakes we made that got us into that pickle where you had one person making the decisions and assuring everybody that all was well when the house was on fire. So it's really important that people understand that diversity of thought is just as important as any other kind of diversity and they are all important so how do we how do we take off our blinders and how do we invite more and more people to influence our thinking i mean if we're lucky we're going to be different when a conversation is over we're going to be different when a meeting ends because we've we've heard some things that we wouldn't have heard if we hadn't had a more diverse um, group of people in the room. You can tell I'm a little passionate about this topic, right? <laughs> yes. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's great for our <laughs> listeners. Um, now, what if what if an organization uh, doesn't really bother with diversity or doesn't make it a priority? What sort of issues are going to arise? What red flags could you look for? Oh, there are going to be some very clear tells. One, one would be that only the usual suspects are invited to the table. It's the same people, the same flow, the same distractions, the same argument for the same strategy, which nets the same outcomes. We're committed to implementing option A while the guys in the warehouse are suggesting option Q, which could save us, but they weren't invited to the meeting. Or you hear words like burning platform and playbook, the grandiose verbiage, a special language spoken from the bully pulpit. And, you know, it's an attempt to add weight to the task at hand, to add importance to what we're doing, like the Wizard of Oz behind the curtain operating his thunder machine, and no one really buys it. 
or you have prevalence of the corporate nod, and this is a real thing. So when people are asked what they think of the leader's ideas or plans, heads lower around the table, eyes are averted, and if the leader calls on someone to speak, he or she adopts a thoughtful expression and nods his or her head, which is mistaken <laughs> for agreement. In actuality, there's little or no agreement, but since those who point out problems are considered troublemakers, nobody pushes back. And one of the worst things is mokitas abound. Mokita is a term from Papua New Guinea, and it means that which everyone knows but no one speaks of. And the health of any community is judged by the number of mokitas that exist within it. So, you know, it, it's apparently also the name of an umbrella drink, but I assume because when enough goes in, the truth might come out. I don't know. And then, you know, there's when we don't have real diversity and real inclusion, there's going to be a gap between official truths and ground truths. So when a company nears disaster, people who work there admit they knew it was coming based on the reality with which they were confronted daily. So in spite of the... C-Suite's exhortations to the contrary, the official truth, all was not well at Enron, Bear Stearns, Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac, Washington Mutual, AIG, GM, Ford, Chrysler, and, you know, now we've got, I don't know what it is with the car industry, but, you know, the billions that they're paying in fines because they were not dealing with the problem. In fact, we're just not even honest about it. So you have that going on, and you've got a dearth of innovation without, without, you know, without inclusion, without diversity, um, we don't have the innovation. I mean, we're, we're being told everything's fine, tra-la-la, uh, we don't need your opinion, you know, we've got it covered. Implementation becomes very difficult because, um, you know, we just, I, I, in fact, I just read an article, it was part of what came out in Deloitte's um, global HR survey for this year, they said that one of the big prices companies are paying is for something called creative disagreement. This is where the executives disagree with a strategy, and they're not really going to challenge the CEO, and they're not really going to plant their flag, because that's not the hill they're prepared to die on. They're just not going to help and they're going to find ways to withdraw and ways to hold back and ways to just not really get on board. And it's very, very expensive. And then, um, I mean, there's, there's a lot more, but I could say one of the things that happens is we declare war on the wrong things in a company. You know, the problem isn't here with me or with us. It's over there. It's you, it's them, it's that, it's this. It's production engineering versus manufacturing. It's offshore rig versus the reservoir group, it's sales versus merchandising, it's our competition's brilliant products, it's not our lack of innovation, it's not our unworkable plan. So, you know, I mean, think about your organization. If it was a car, would any of the warning lights be flashing red? And if they might be, um, then who else needs to be brought to the table to help us get it right, to make sure that we end up where we want to end up. You know, the whole premise of Fierce was um, courtesy, actually, of, of Ernest Hemingway. And in The Sun Also Rises, the characters asked, how did you go bankrupt? And he says, gradually, then suddenly. 
And I'm thinking that our careers and our companies and our relationships and our lives succeed or fail gradually and suddenly one conversation at a time. So Fierce Conversations is all about paying attention during gradually so that we end up at a wonderful suddenly that we can celebrate rather than a horrible suddenly that's now on YouTube that's going to cost us billions of dollars that a lot of people could have told us was, was happening. So, you know, there is so much at stake regarding diversity in all of its forms, including especially right now diversity of thought and inclusion of the right people depending on the topic that's, that's on the table. Well, unfortunately, I think I've been in all those meetings you were describing at one time or another. We all have. We all have, yep. So I hope I've been to my last one. Um, are there any metrics or uh, other kinds of measurements that you use to evaluate an organization's, I don't know, I guess I might call it a diversity quotient or something? We don't have um, a specific metric that we gauge. It's often case by case. But we do believe that diversity of thought has the capacity to move all of a company's critical KPIs forward. So if, you know, they, when we're working with a company and they're saying, you know, we're coming to you because we, we want to improve diversity and inclusion, um, we have to make sure that they understand that we're talking about diversity of thought as well as all of these other things. It's just like in my second book, Fierce Leadership, one of the things everybody had employee engagement programs and they had all these programs about employee engagement, but they didn't actually engage the employees. <laughs> so they talked about it a lot. And there was an awareness that it was an issue, but they didn't, their behavior didn't do anything to really engage employees. So it's the same, for me, it's the same with this. We can talk about diversity and inclusion all day long, and unless you're prepared to actually behave in a way that, that demonstrates inclusiveness and the value of diversity, then it's just all air and, you know, if people can see through that. They, they see right through it and, and they won't stay. We just had one of our largest clients, I mean, this is a huge, huge company, one of the biggest in the world, just lost several of their senior female executives and they won't even talk about why. People are forbidden to ask about it. Everybody was simply told that these women left because of a better, you know, different opportunities. There's more going on right there. There's more going on than anybody knows, and um, it probably has something to do with the glass ceiling for women. Is my is my guess, knowing that company as well as I know that company. Wow. So. Uh, I mean, and they're they're struggling. They're going to lose more women too. I think. I have noticed that your organization has been selected to the 100 best companies to work for in Washington. And that makes me wonder, yeah. is diversity now a, uh, an imperative for organizations that are striving for that best company to work for status? Well, I don't know if it's actually a question. I don't think it is on the serve. You know, the way you end up on that list is a survey, an on anonymous survey is sent out to everybody and they fill it out and it isn't on there and yet it's kind of, it, it's, 
it reveals itself in some of the other questions because some of the questions have to do with um, communication and how included people are in meetings and how much um, honesty and authenticity, how much candor is there. Do they feel like they really know what's going on? Do they feel like they're um, a valued member of the organization whose work is valued, whose opinion is valued? And so it, it shows up um, in other categories. And it, you know, it may over time end up being one of the very specific questions, but it definitely, you can, you can trace, easily you can trace how companies are investing or not investing in those areas. Well, you mentioned candor, and that uh, leads me to this final question that I have. I introduced you as someone who says the things that can't be said. So can you reveal an example of something that can't be said? Oh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> there have been so many things <laughs> that can't be said. And I, sometimes I wonder about that because they can be said, but, pe but everybody thinks, no, I, we can't say those. So um, let me just get, let me just hop over to the personal side of life for a second. I remember I was working with a bunch of CEOs who we were sort of sitting around a campfire um, literally sitting around a campfire, and one of the CEOs said, I don't know what to do. I mean, I, I, I really love my life, but I'm not happy, and I don't think I could stay, and I don't know what to say to her. And I said, why don't you say I love you, and I don't love our life together? I mean, that is a hard thing to say. Uh, I'm, you know, I'm not happy in this relationship. That is a hard thing to say on the personal side. On the business side, it's hard to say this strategic plan that we all bought in on and we're, we all are accountable for certain parts of it, I believe it's flawed. <laughs> um, I think that, I think that we, uh, reality has shifted and no plan survives its collision with reality and I think, I think our plan has collided with a reality that, you know, means we're going to have to adjust completely. And that's hard to say when a company is way down the road on something. Years ago, I was working with a team at Microsoft who were, they were going to, they were just about to launch a, a, a cell phone that was mostly going to be for teens, and yet their, uh, the battery didn't last very long and it was very, very expensive. And I remember saying to them, this is not going to go well because people aren't going to buy it. And uh, they said, well, we're going to launch it because it's really great. And they launched it and two weeks later they took it off the market <laughs> because it, it, it didn't, it didn't work. So, you know, Saying, saying this isn't working, this product isn't good enough, or it's flawed, or our service, there's something wrong. I'm hoping that, I'm hoping that United Airlines is having a conversation right now and saying some of the things that can't be said. Saying no to a client. Uh, sometimes, you know, customers understandably uh, want you to give them the sun, moon, and stars for absolutely nothing. <laughs> no profit at all and sometimes you have to say you know I'm sorry we'd love to help you and we're not a non-for-profit we're we, we've got to make money in this deal too and and this is just you know it's not going to work so saying no to a client can be very difficult or even saying sometimes what happens for us is a client 
will call because, you know, this is what we need. And as we question and go deeper and deeper and deeper, we recognize that they need something else first. And we want to help them with the whole thing. We want to make sure that they go after the, the real issue, not the symptom of the issue. So so that's, that's a thing when you're saying, you know, I, what you're describing are the symptoms, but I don't think that's the real problem. I think the problem is over here. You know, what do you think about that? That's difficult. It can feel risky. I remember saying to one of my CEOs, I want to talk with you about what I suspect is a drinking problem that you have. And he absolutely blew up. He was just furious. And the next month when I saw him and asked what we should talk about, he said, we should talk about my drinking problem. Uh, mm. You know, you have, you have to, sometimes you have to set aside being liked uh, in the moment for what you think is the best thing for this human being or for this organization instead of narrow self-interest, instead of protecting myself at all costs and never saying anything that's controversial, even if I believe it so strongly, it's coursing through my blood. But if I'm holding it in, then I'm just pretending I don't even exist half the time, and I'm not bringing value to an organization. So there are many, many things that we think sometimes can't be said, and so therefore nothing is going to change, and we're just going to pay steeper and steeper prices until we might end up arriving at a very negative suddenly. Well, Susan, it's, uh, it's easy to see why the CEOs find uh, Fierce helpful. Thanks so much for joining us today and uh, providing these very helpful okay. insights. I, I just want to let your listeners know that on May 2nd, a revised version of Fierce Conversations will be available. Um, and I've really, you know, I wrote the original book 15 years ago, and a lot has changed in our world since then. So there are quite a few new areas and deeper thoughts. And so May 2nd, look for Fierce Conversations, new, new revised version. Fierce Conversations. Okay. Thanks very much, Susan. Listeners. You're welcome. Listeners, please let me know what HR work should cover next. sbruce at blr.com. Thanks for listening. This is Steve Bruce for HR Works. The opinions expressed on HR Works do not represent legal or any other type of professional advice and should not be used as a substitute for legal advice from a qualified attorney licensed in your state.